who have um, an environment now that is the most detrimental to law enforcement in my lifetime, I think in, in history. You, you have legislation being put into place in states like the state of Washington, which is, are so radically anti-law enforcement. They're actually anti-public safety. Because yeah. if you take away the, the power of the police to make arrests or to defend themselves when they're being attacked, who suffers besides the cops? It's the people. We've seen, because of, of, of this issue, we've seen the public safety diminish in almost every single, unfortunately, democratically-led city in the country, every major city. We've seen it in L.A., in, in Portland, in Seattle, in New York in St. Louis, you name it. The, the surge in violence is, has been catastrophic. And yet you don't, we're only now, only now starting to see a little pushback from the narrative. Uh, for instance, the, uh, the radical city council in Minneapolis literally tried to dismantle the entire police department. And replace it with something that nobody even knew what they were replacing it with. And this was just defeated. Um, and um, but in, in Austin, it was the, the, the defund police movement is alive and well. Um, so we're only now starting to see some pushback um, because the people are the, this. This has to be a, a citizen driven um, effort. Yeah, because. The, 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 so the police are scared to death to do their job. Um, and who can blame them? Who can blame them? I mean, just just several days ago, um, a, uh, a young female officer was murdered, shot to death. Um, she had uh, answered a call for a, a domestic situation. She and her partner get to the house. When they knock on the door, a woman opens the door, points a gun at them, at which point... They should have just opened fire and saved their lives. Instead, they gave her a warning. Drop the gun. Instead of dropping the gun, she shot the officer in the face. Wow. Now, there is, when you make a life and death decision to, to save your own life in, a, in a, what we call a critical incident, these, these decisions have to take place instantaneously. That's why we have to train officers all the time, continually throughout their law enforcement career to how to survive that career. When you, when you push hesitancy, now why, why be hesitant when you're even going to save your own life? Because there have been so many documented cases now where, where police officers are being prosecuted for justifiable shootings. Right. So you, you, tell, the, you tell the police, well, we want you to go out there and do your jobs, but not really, because yeah. So, so th that's the new environment that that these officers are facing. This is episode number two forty with Randy Sutton from the Wounded Blue. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode. Look, we are working nonstop right now on our upcoming event, 
The Great American Summit. It's happening January 7th and 8th in Irving, Texas. It's just nine miles from the Dallas airport. And we are bringing almost 30 speakers and performers from all across the country together in one spot to share their insight, inspiration, and expertise with our audience. While together we celebrate the best of America, recognize our core values, celebrate our freedom and the American dream and all the opportunities that we have here in this country. And we would love to see you there. GreatAmericanSummit.com. We have Ryan Weaver, country music artist, Ryan Weaver. He is a former Black Hawk aviator whose brother and brother-in-law were both tragically shot down and killed on active duty. He will be performing a patriotic concert at the event. And we also have Tom Verano, a nationally acclaimed performance speed painter. He'll be bringing his amazing talent to the cause. You're not going to want to miss his performance, Emotion Into Art. And not only will attendees have opportunities to strengthen themselves and their families, but they will be a part of something that's strengthening our communities and our country. We are all coming together, like-minded folks coming together to take a stand for freedom and to double down on the American dream and everything that makes America great. And here's the best thing about the whole event. All net proceeds are being donated to organizations that support our veterans, our military, law enforcement, first responders, and victims of human trafficking. One organization is the Wounded Blue, which serves the law enforcement community by filling the gap in supportive and preventive services for our men and women in blue. We sat down with a Wounded Blue's founder, Randy Sutton for a live talk about a week or so ago, and he shared his story of service as well as the purpose of The Wounded Blue. So check out this interview with Randy Sutton from The Wounded Blue. Make sure you get your ticket today to the Great American Summit, greatamericansummit.com. And without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with Randy Sutton. You're listening to the American Snippets Podcast. Hello there. How is everybody today? I hope you're all enjoying better weather than we are here in New York. It is a super rainy, windy day, although I think it's kind of cool. And it's a perfect day, perfect way to round out a week. Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people like to kind of coast into their weekend and just go gently off into that good night. But we're going out strong on Friday, just like we've been all week, because today we are sitting down with Randy Sutton. Randy, He's an expert, like a true expert on all things, all things law enforcement. And he's absolutely the opposite of what you'd call a stranger to major news outlets, TV shows, and national publications as well. Randy is here today because our mutual friend, Ryan Weaver, who we had the joy of sitting down with last night, Ryan connected us. And when we heard about the Wounded Blue, we just jumped, like jumped right on that chance to connect with Randy and talk about bringing this organization in as one of the beneficiaries of the Great American Summit so that we can do our part to support our law enforcement officers who need that support so um, so seriously. And so there's such a huge gap in, in the support services for them. And we're going to talk about all that. So today we're going to sit down. We're going to hear about Randy's story, your own background in law enforcement, what qualifies you as that expert status, you know, outside of... Um, being on media because it's much more multi-layered than that, right? It's much more than what you see out there on TV. And what your organization does and why it's so important for organizations like this, as well as the fact that you have several partner organizations you work with as well. Um, we're so excited to get to know you and to get to know more about your organization. And we're really honored to have the opportunity to be some small part of giving back to 
this community of men and women who serve our communities throughout the country, um, especially probably in some of the most turbulent times of my lifetime, for sure, that you all are doing this. So, Randy, thank you so much for being with us today. Barb, it is a true pleasure to be here. And um, I, I just want to compliment you on the um, on the uh, uh, way that you introduce your podcast. That is that is really cool. You did a great job on that uh, on that introduction to the. Uh, <laughs> it's beautiful. I love it. It's very professional. It looks amazing. Kind of gets the blood going a little bit. I love it. I love it. I get. I usually am dancing around backstage when we're playing that. I, <laughs> I believe it. it. But, but I really, it's an honor for me to be here. Thank you so much for great for bringing me in and for Ryan Weaver to introduce us. He's a great guy. This is what we talk about. Um, you know, it's like since one of the ripple effects of us starting this podcast, not really knowing where we were going or what our true Claire, like ultimate goal was going to be, is all the people that we've met and the network that we've built. And there's something to be said for that. But that's a whole other story. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about your um, service in law enforcement. I'm the granddaughter. My grandfather was the chief deputy inspector of the NYPD. And um, I only got occasional tales from him about it because he didn't really talk about it all that much um, while we were growing up. But uh, it, it has always interested me. And uh, we just we see what law enforcement are going through now. Uh, and it's so I'd love to compare and contrast what it is now versus when you were active on the force as well. Sure. Well, there's there's a there's a lot to that question. So uh, I'll give you you want a little background about about my career and about what uh, my law enforcement career, correct? Yeah. Okay. Easy. Um, Easy. So I spent 34 years as a, as a police officer. I started out my career in a small community in New Jersey, Princeton Borough, um, and I and I was it was a 30 officer police department. I was hired when I was 19 years old, Barb. Um, they had just changed the age of majority. And well, my kids are. <laughs> I know. And you know, it's funny because when I look back on some of the decisions that I made as a 19 year old cop, I, I, I even cringe. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, that was a, that was where I started my career. I spent 10 years there um, as a patrol officer for six and then I was a detective for four. And, and, and it was my hometown. So, you, you know, it's a small community. And, I, and quite honestly, I, I got kind of bored. And, um, and I was halfway to retirement. So I had to really make a tough decision. I got one move in me. And, uh, and I had heard about the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, what a great organization it was and what a growing community it was. So I, I came out here in Las Vegas, where I still reside, took the test, got hired, had to start all over my career. I had to go through the academy. Field really? training. Yeah, the whole bit. There's wow. And that was so I went from being the youngest cop in the academy when I went through the first time to being one of the older guys uh, <laughs> in the Las Vegas, in the Las Vegas Police Academy. But I, I never looked back on that decision, Barb. It was uh it was um one of the things that I mean literally it affected the, the my entire future. And um and and let me tell you, Vegas, you know, I went I went from from this little sleepy community to I was in my first shooting when, when, when I was still on probation. So oh it was like, you're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Um, yeah. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. Exactly. So I spent uh, during that, I did 24 years of Las Vegas Metro, um, retired as a, as a Lieutenant and uh, did a lot of other things along the way. And I had, I had some great assignments. I was, you know, 
task force commander for federal task force. We, we put some serious bad guys away. Uh, but, the, but really, you know what, when it comes down to it, the backbone of law enforcement is patrol. That's where the action is. That's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Um, and so I spent most of my time in that, in that capacity. Wow. Um, and that's a, as we see anyone who checks out the news any day, it, se- it seems like every week there's another story of a law enforcement officer being shot or wounded on duty. Um, and so that's a, I, as I sit and think, we all like to think that we'd be courageous and do these things or, and a lot of us like people will sit back in our comfy chairs by our fireplaces and keyboard warrior, how law enforcement officers should have handled the situation better. Um, but when you see these stories and trying to like, for me, trying to picture myself in that situation, it's just, it feels like it would be overwhelming to be in such a constant state of danger or never know when something is going to go from seemingly peaceful and under control to flipping, like, you know, spinning on a dime and turning on you. How, what was your overall tone of that time on patrol there where you were serving? Um, you know, was it more often something would go awry or catch you off guard or were there quiet nights or, you know, what was that like? Well, you know, Vegas is not a quiet town. Right. And, and uh, I spent the last six years, five years as a field lieutenant on the graveyard shift. Now, in if I was working the graveyard shift in Princeton, I was lucky to get two calls a night and you're trying to f- figure out stuff to do to, to stay alert. Um, here in Vegas, you're going called you're going call to call. And so there's a lot of action, a lot of activity. Um, and and you, and you have to be you have to be very, very aware when you're a police officer in any community whether it's large or small, because if you become complacent as a police officer, it can kill you. You have to be ready at any time to go from officer friendly to a warrior where you are literally in a fight for your life. Now there's, there's a lot, a lot to that statement and and I'll try to explain it. There are physical and psychological reactions to being what we call hypervigilant. And you have to remain hypervigilant when during your during your, your shift because you have to be aware of everything. You got to be aware of, of movement over over to the to your right, movement to your left. You got to every interaction that you have, you have to keep in mind, this can wind up to be a fatal interaction. Even the most, even the most root, and I use this word, um, I'm putting parentheses, routine call routine traffic stop routine there is no routine everything has to be um uh evaluated and then you have to be prepared to act physically emotionally um you know there's there that's why policing is so challenging Barb. and, and you know many people view it as kind of a um a, a blue collar job, if you will. And, and it's far, it's, it's far from that. It requires an immense concentration. It requires the ability to, to communicate well. It requires the ability to, um, it's, it's a very, very, in many cases, introspective type of, of career. Um, and, 
And it, it is so intellectually challenging. And many people don't realize that, but it's, but it's very true. And, um, and that's, you know, that's one of the, that's one of the aspects about policing that I loved so much because it was so challenging. Yeah. So how is it different today for law enforcement officers out there than how it was when you were still actively serving? Well, that's a, that, that's the, that's a great question. And so I retired and I'll explain the difference, the, why I retired, you know, mm-hmm. as we, as we move further into this. Um, but I've been continuing in, in the law enforcement sector for all, for all the years I've been retired as a commentator on, on Fox news, um, and, uh, and, and many other news outlets. Um, I've been right. I've written, you know, a gazillion articles for law enforcement magazine. Uh, I've written four books, um, three of them about policing. So I, I've never, even though I've stepped away from active service as being a cop, I haven't left the field at all. I'm still deeply, deeply involved in it. And so I, and, and through my organization, the Wounded Blue, I interact with police officers multiple times a day from all over the country. So I have a, I have a, a deep understanding of, of the challenges facing these officers today. And I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen, now this began the, the, the respect level of law, for law enforcement began um, to decline under the Obama years. Um, Obama was a, was a very anti-law enforcement um, president. Uh, he was he was very deeply critical of law enforcement. Um, he made his his uh, he made his attitude known right off you know as soon as he got into office, and and that began sociological change because you know the American people look at their leader and they go, well, wait a minute, if this guy's questioning law enforcement, um, maybe we need to start, you know, reviewing this ourselves. And then, of course, we had the the first major um, milestone in law enforcement, which began the the, uh, narrative, the false narrative of institutionalized police racism. That was, of course, um, Ferguson. Uh, the uh, uh, killing of Michael Brown, a justified shooting uh, that was uh, rule justified in every by every single entity that did the investigation. But the, the fiction of hands up, don't shoot had a devastating effect on the uh, on the law enforcement community, even though it never happened. Hands up, don't shoot never took place. Wow. It was it was it was fictionalized. And yet you saw you saw major political figures in Congress going hands up, don't shoot. You saw sports heroes, you saw celebrities, and it created a, a very, very dangerous environment for police. It began the decline of the respect level for law enforcement. And it was maddening maddening to, to, to view this uh, and watch it and know that it was all built on lies. How does that happen? How does a complete fictional tale, how does, how does that happen? How does that become 
told this truth and with no repercussions. Yeah, that's and that's the question. That's the question of the century, um, because I I don't know. I mean, here's what I do know. I do know that the media, the what we now call the mainstream media, latched on to this phrase, hands up, don't shoot. And must have said it 40,000 times in the first month. Um, now, if you're, if you're a, a, an American who just watches the news, and that's where you get your right. inter- interpretation from, and you hear this, and, and you hear, oh, man, my God, the, this racist cop killed this poor, innocent guy who was just, I mean, it was... Watching it was men knowing knowing that that I mean I heard that report the first the first minute it came out I knew that this was not accurate I knew it I the, the gunning down of this of this poor youth um, I knew that wasn't accurate because I know policing if it because it's just it was so outlandish and yet as outlandish as it was even though it was proven time and time and time again you will still see people. Leaders, oh got it. I use that word really loosely. Yeah. Um, quote, hands up, don't shoot. And 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 refer to the Michael Brown uh justifiable shooting as a murder. I mean, you'll you still see it to this day. So that be, that began that began the myriad of issues facing cops today. Now you have you have an, an environment now which is um Entirely anti-law enforcement from the from the mainstream media, from political leadership, including the the, uh, the president of the United States has been highly critical of law enforcement, um, has not backed them, has in fact ended one of the most critical programs to keep cops safe. That that um, for one of the first things he did in office when and Obama did the same thing. Um, there, there was there was a, a federal program that allowed police agencies to get life-saving equipment, such as uh, MRAPs, which are uh, armored vehicles that are used in hostage situations for, for uh, uh, flood rescue. Uh, getting you know, uh, uh, you know, they don't not very often, but when you need it, you got to have it because it because it will it, it saves the lives of police, saves the lives of citizens. Obama ended that program. When Trump came in, he reinstated that program. When Biden came in, he ended that program. And in fact, trying to get in there in some instances, they're trying to repossess some of this life saving equipment. So you have to go leave everything over in Afghanistan, but take equipment. Yeah. You got to make it up somewhere. It is. So you have, you have um, an environment now that is the most detrimental to law enforcement in my lifetime, I think in, in history. You, you have legislation being put into place in states like the state of Washington, which is are so radically anti-law enforcement. They're actually anti-public safety. Because yeah. if you take away the, the power of the police to make arrests or to defend themselves when they're being attacked, who suffers besides the cops? It's the people. We've seen, because of, of, of this issue, we've seen the public safety diminish in almost every single 
unfortunately, democratically led city in the country. Every major city. We've seen it in L.A., in, in Portland, in Seattle, in New York, in St. Louis, you name it. The, the surge in violence is, has been catastrophic. And yet you don't, we're only now, only now starting to see a little pushback from the narrative. Uh, for instance, the, uh, the radical city council in Minneapolis literally tried to dismantle the entire police department and replace it with something that nobody even knew what they were replacing it with. And this was just defeated. Um, and, um, but in, in Austin, it was the, the, the defund police movement is alive and well. Um, so we're only now starting to see some pushback um, because the people are, the, this, this has to be a, a citizen driven um, effort. Yeah. Because the, 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 so the police are scared to death to do their job. Um, and who can blame them? Who can blame them? I mean, just just several days ago, um, a, uh, a young female officer was murdered, shot to death. Um, she had uh, answered a call for a, a domestic situation. She and her partner get to the house. When they knock on the door, a woman opens the door, points a gun at them, at which point they should have just opened fire and saved their lives. Instead, they gave her a warning. Drop the gun. Instead of dropping the gun, she shot the officer in the face. Wow. Now, th there is, when you make a life and death decision to, to save your own life in a, in a, what we call a critical incident, these, these decisions have to take place instantaneously. That's why we have to train officers all the time, continually throughout their law enforcement career to how to survive that career. When you, when you push hesitancy, now why, why be hesitant when you're even going to save your own life? Because there have been so many documented cases now where, where police officers are being prosecuted for justifiable shootings. Right. So you, you tell the, you tell the police, well, we want you to go out there and do your jobs, but not really because yeah. So, so th that's the new environment that, that these officers are facing. So, so let me ask you something here. Let me just ask you something here because sure. I, I know that a lot of the pushback against what you're saying um, will be people who take, who, who take what you're saying and put it in a funnel and come out with the narrative that you are now saying there's no such thing as a, bad cop there's no such thing as unjustified shootings and no. that all cops no. are perfect because that's no. whenever there's any pushback or attempt to explain the whole picture it feels like it goes in here and it comes out these people are denying that there's any racist any racist cops at all that there's any bad cops that don't belong like they, it just and that's what it like there it, it feels like there's no ability from the opposing point of view people to understand that there's the truth is in the middle Somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. Now, one of the things that I did as a trainer, a law enforcement trainer, I had written an article called Policing with Honor, How to Survive Your Career Ethically, as well as Physically and Emotionally. And um, it was published in one of the major police uh, magazines. And, I, and, and, and departments began reaching out to me saying, hey, we're really interested in this topic. Do you speak about it? 
And this is when I was, one of the jobs I had with Las Vegas Metro was I was the supervisor in charge of advanced training. So I saw that there was a major interest in this topic. So I created a training program called Policing with Honor that I literally trained thousands of police officers across the nation in how to survive your career ethically. And, and so believe me, I'm a realist when it comes down to the realities of, of law enforcement ethics. And there, there are plenty of instances of cops going bad, going rogue, of, of, of being uh, actually, you know, crossing into, into criminality. I mean, I've studied all of this. I, it, it, is, it, is a, it is a truism that misconduct and corruption exist in law enforcement today and always has and always will. Because as long as you have people with power, um, that, that uh, uh, you're going to have people who abuse that power. Whether that power is political or that power is police. Now, I can tell you this with, with absolute certainty. Nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. Yeah, that's right? where I was going to go. You know, I get that. I have a similar feeling. I don't know if you know, my husband was murdered by another soldier in the military. So I know that. Uh, and then that led to uncovering a whole bunch of other stuff, too. So I, I understand that as well, that there's, you know, people, they're just, I think also, as long as we're human beings, we're, you're going to have good people and you're going to have bad people. And it's just another segment of society. But I wanted to take a minute to make that distinction because I know that right away, a lot of people just turn off and block out what you're saying uh, in terms yeah. of common sense because they view that as you denying that. No, any racism at all, that there's any misconduct, that there's any, you know, um, criminal action within the in the force. And so that's just a reality, I think, that you have to face. But more so, I think that just gives you guys more incentive to point out those cases and make an example of them and clean. You know, it's better for everybody when when those incidents are uncovered and um, and dealt with. Right. Prosecuted and, and dealt with. So. I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you were cool with kind of taking that other road and for being so open on it. So let's get into. Let's talk about first then. Why? What was your, behind your decision to to retire? And then what led you to go all in and start a nonprofit, which is not an easy thing to do. It is no small. It's it's not like you just start it and you know you spend an hour every week talking to people, right? It's a big deal to do what you're doing. So. Let's go first. What prompted you to to end your career, uh, to leave your career at that point in time that you did? And then what led you to start this nonprofit? And then what does your nonprofit do? So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to get a little bit philosophical with us, with with you okay. and, and with the audience. You know, a law enforcement career that spans any length of time at all, um, there will be milestones in that career that um, that affect you deeply. and um, I call that, so I, I call them milestone moments because you will experience things that will be life changing. Mm -hmm. um, and that life change can be either positive or negative uh, from what you, what you witness, what you experience. Um, and included in that is our officers who become severely injured in the line of duty. Mm -hmm. uh, those are life changing experiences as well. I'm just going to, I'm going to throw one stat at you because I don't want to, I mean, stats can get a little crazy, yeah. but um, last year, more than 60,000 police officers were physically assaulted in the line of duty. 
60,000. They were shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, hit with bricks, um, punched, kicked. Um, and many of those led to deaths. Many led to severe injuries, catastrophic injuries, disabling injuries. So that's the, that's the reality the police face. Every single encounter that they have can lead to one of those, one of those fates. So then on the opposite side, you have moments where you, maybe you give life back to someone. Maybe you, you enter, you enter their lives at a moment that is critical to them and you affect them positively for the rest of their lives. That's what cops live for. Okay. And I've experienced both. I've given life and I've taken life. And both of those Excuse me. Both of those have dramatic effects on your future. So you become very introspective during during these moments, and 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 these experiences live with you for the rest of your life. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna get now to. I didn't intend to retire when I did, even though I had 34 years total as a police officer. I had a stroke in my police car wow. while I was on the patrol 2:30 in the morning on Las Vegas Boulevard. Um, I suffered a stroke and it was quite literally part of the most frightening moment of my life. And I've had some frightening moments. Um, I lost the ability to speak. I was speaking gibberish. I knew I was speaking gibberish. I was completely not in control of myself. Mm -hmm. um, I lost the ability to move. I was crumpled on the sidewalk, um, unable to care for myself. And meanwhile, tourists are walking by me, taking pictures of me. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, laying on paper. Oh, um, my God. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so that ended my police career. Um, I should mention that there was a lot going on in my life at that time. My mother had died in my arms three weeks before. Um, I was involved in a fatal shooting several months before. God, Randy. Yeah, yeah. So there was a lot going on. Um, in my life at the time, but they eventually determined that what really caused it was I had a severe heart condition that I was unaware of. So once again, that little angel that's been sitting on my shoulder my entire career was with me again that night. And the blood clot that hit my brain that caused the stroke dissipated rather quickly, leaving me with, with some lingering issues, but certainly um none of the none of the none of the worst you know i still i'm still walking talking i've still got my faculties and and it, and it didn't have to be that way so i feel incredibly fortunate but it ended my it ended that that time in my life i mean i lost everything i lost my mom i lost the career that i loved i lost uh, my health mm -hmm. and so it was a really reflective time for me um, about, and then, and then the doctor tells me that, <laughs> um, Randy, you have this really severe heart condition and you should probably prepare for your own death. Oh yeah. <laughs> not, not exactly, not exactly cheerful news. Right. And so that, that created, you know, for me, you know, what's my legacy going to be? If, if, if I'm going to die, 
Right. Of course, we're all going to die, right? This that maybe it's my maybe my time has now been hastened, according to to the doctor. How do I? How do I live the rest of my time? And what what do I what do I do with this? And how do I maintain um, uh, the ability to touch the lives of people in service? And so I had to really I had to really evaluate that. So, but then again, um, something happened that that changed the course of my life. And that was that my own department turned its back on me and refused to pay my medical bills. Not anything I expected. No. A, uh, a police department that I served with for 24 years that I literally almost gave my life for just said, we're not paying. Now, they, they knew they were legally obligated to pay. That, <laughs> there's, there's, that's, a, that's a pretty open and shut deal, right? They just said, we're not going to do it. And then they, they spent tens of thousands of dollars of taxpayers' money to fight my, my medical benefits. Why? Uh, to, well, the, the real reason is because I became just a number to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I was no longer Lieutenant Randy Sutton. I was case number XYZ, okay. and it was going to cost them money to give me my benefits. So they, were, they, they, took, they, they wrote it out for a year. I won every hearing. They wrote it out for a year, and they were hoping that I was going to die in the meantime. Oh That's really what it comes down to. Um, Delay, yeah. deny, and hope they die. That's the there, that's the former VA motto. <laughs> there you go. There you yeah. go. So um, I, but this was very emotionally debilitating to me, and uh, and and so you know it was it was startling, and I thought that it was just me. I thought. And I even went to go see the sheriff, a guy who I'd served with for 24 years. And I said, how do you treat me like this? And he looked at me straight in the eye. I'll never forget this. He said, Randy, this isn't personal. It's just business. <laughs> and, that's the, and that's the truth. That's yeah. all it is now. It's business. So, okay. So now I've now experienced this. I am, I'm unemployed and can't go back to being a cop. But you know, I've done all these other things in my life. I've been, and then, and I believe me, I'm not saying this to brag. It's just that it, it has to, I have to tell you this because it illustrates what happened next. You know, I was on the TV show cops a, a gazillion times, right? Numerous seasons. With, so I was very visible. I've been in movies. I've, have you ever saw the movie Casino with yes. Robert De Niro? Yeah. Well, I was, I, I was in that movie. I was in a bunch of other movies. I've written four books. I've been a police trainer. So I was out in the law enforcement community, very, right. very visible. Now, that played a critical role in what happened next. That's when Facebook was really, really, you know, becoming a, uh, the thing. And, and police officers started reaching out to me from around the country, um, both through Facebook and also just through my website. And, you know, and, and, and they were telling me, Randy, I got shot in the line of duty. My chief never came to visit me in the hospital. They're not paying my medical bills. Brandy, I got hit by a car. They're not, they could have, they could have saved my, my career, but they, they just turned their back on me and didn't give me the proper medical treatment. Not one, not two, Barb, but, but five and then 10 and then 20. And it was like, wait a minute. How is this possible? How is this possible in this day and age that we can turn our backs? on police officers who gave 
incredible sacrifices. And so I thought, okay, there's got to, and, and inevitably, every conversation ended with something along the lines of, I feel forgotten. I feel abandoned. I feel that, that um, I no longer matter anymore. Heartbreaking stuff, Barb, heartbreaking. And of course, the law enforcement has a huge suicide rate. When, when you lose hope, and, and this is really a massive issue in, with, with, with uh, severely injured cops, if you lose hope, you lose everything. So it affects the suicide rate. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, wait a minute, there has to be a national resource for these men and women. And to my shock, found that there was no national resource for them. And that's what created the birth of the Wounded Blue. And we are the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. We are an organization made up of injured and disabled officers. What we do, Barb, is most critical. You'll see, you'll see my shirt, my T-shirt. It says, never forgotten, never alone. That is the most important thing that we can do as an organization to reach out to police officers who've been severely injured or, and when I say injured, I'm not just saying physically injured. Post-traumatic stress injury is as real as a bullet. Yeah, absolutely. You know that. Yes. And so when, when we say injured and disabled, we make, there is no distinction between physical injury and emotional and psychological injury when it comes down to what we do. Here's what we do. I have the most incredible team of officers you ever met in your life. They are the peer advocate support team of the Wounded Blue. They are highly trained, certified officers who, who are peer counselors. And what does that mean? See, when you've been injured in the line of duty, um, you, want, you want to know that you're not alone and, and, and have people that you can talk to that have been in your shoes, that have been where you are, can give solace, can give advice, can say, Hey, listen, you are not, you're not in this by yourself anymore, man. You still have that blue family. And so this team, I can't, I can't talk about them enough because I'm so proud of them. Many of these men and women are, are severely disabled, and yet they continue to serve. They want to serve because service is in their nature. Service is who they are, and they still do in the most, in the most incredible ways possible by being part of that family and reaching out to these officers. We've, we've only been operational for two, a little over two and a half years, Barb, and we've wow. touched the lives of more than 12,000 law enforcement officers in this nation, and not just in this nation. Um, police officers from around, the, from around the world have reached out to us. And we, we uh, um, whether they're current officers or retired or separated from service, if they, if they wore the badge, we're there to help. And that's what the, that's what the peer advocacy support team does. Now, um, we offer all kinds of, of other, we, we love to partner with other charities and other organizations. So you know you're not supposed to do that, right? You know, it's supposed to be every nonprofit first time. You guys are breaking a lot of rules there. I know. I know. <laughs> I know so are. But you see, nobody, can, no, nobody, can nobody told you that. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> but nobody can accomplish this mission by itself. Yeah. Nobody. It's just, it's impossible. You can't be all encompassing. You can't be everywhere. You right. can't be, and you can't all be vying for the same resources. Like you have to divide and conquer and 
support each other. Exactly. So, so we, we, if, if somebody very often, all they'll need in order to get them through these rough times is to have that peer advocate support team behind them, knowing that they can pick up that phone and call their peer team officer 24 seven. Right. Um, but sometimes it's not enough. Sometimes they need psychological care and whether that's inpatient or outpatient, um, we, we have resources that help them get into those treatments. And in addition, we have a program which I'm so proud of. This was one of the biggest challenges that, that we faced as an organization. And that is police officers are scared to death to go ask for help. Mm-hmm. Like the military, right? No, they don't want to admit that they need help to others. Uh, they may even admit it to themselves, but they're scared to go ask for help because of the stigma, because of um, they they think that they're they don't trust their own administrations in in most of the cases actually, um, which is which is a sad commentary, but is unfortunately accurate because there's still places in this country where Barb, you're the you're the chief of police. I go in and I say, Chief, sit down with you. Um, I'm having I'm having real issues with that the shooting that I was involved in a couple of years ago. I'm really having some problems. I need to get some help. And that chief can and may say, "Really? Oh, sorry to hear that, man. Put your gun badge on the on the table here. Um, you're done." Wow. So they're they're afraid to get help. Well, we've this took us this this took us a long time to get. But we Wait, have, and I apologize for keeping interrupting you, but I'm going to lose it. But don't you think it would be more detrimental or more worry, more concerning? I think is the word. If if no no one was impacted by things that happen, like if you guys could just go through and experience all that and not be impacted in some way, wouldn't that be more concerning? You, you know what that that's a, that's a fascinating topic, Barb. Fascinating topic, and I'm really glad you brought that up because there. You, there's no doubt in, in, in any cop's mind, you're going to experience trauma right. as a cop. It's going to happen. How much and how often, that's determined by, by the luck of the draw, by the community that you're serving. But it's going to happen. You're going to see death. You're going to see, you're going to see the, the worst side of human beings. You're going you're to be impacted. Now, there is, and we all know, we've all heard post-traumatic stress injury, post-traumatic stress disorder, but also, and this is a topic that's not referred to enough, and that's post-traumatic stress growth, right? That that is experiencing these things. And at the same time, you react uh, introspectively to to understand what you're going through and have it it change you in a way that's positive. And that's also part of the equation, but but rarely talked about. But you're absolutely right. If you aren't affected, if That's if you go through, if yeah. you go through life and you just held a dead baby in your arms and you went home and and you didn't think about it again, there'd be something seriously wrong with you. So yeah, yeah you you and here you know and here's something. This is this is another part of of the of the bigger conversation. Cops can become cauterized. Their souls can become quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. And, and listen, I, I've been there. I have been in times where you shut 
something down inside to cope. And that's not healthy either. No. So, so what we have, what we have, and this is something that I'm incredibly proud of. We have a program called code Four total wellness. And with, with the money that we bring in from donations, we give this program to officers in need. What is the program? 24 hour day telemedicine with licensed MDs, prescription discounts, medical, all kinds of medical discounts. Most importantly, um, a, a program called CAPER, the Confidential Assistance Program for Emergency Responders. Unlimited visits with psychologists and psychiatrists for, wow. them, and their, for them and their family. That's huge. It's huge. It's huge. That's huge. And I, and, but here, you know, so, you know, one of my peer team contacts me and says, I got this officer. They don't have enough money to go pay for a psychologist, which is often the case. Mm -hmm. um, let's give them this program. We sign them up, we pay for it, and it's saving lives. See, yeah. let, let, I'm going to give you just one quick example. Um, we had a, um, a police officer murdered um, in, in Alabama. Uh, he was literally drawn into an ambush and cut down. It was, it was heartbreaking. Small agency. Re remember, this is important. There's 16,000 different police agencies approximately in this country. And 80% of them have less than 20 cops. So okay. they're scattered all over this, this country. So this agency has maybe 23, 24 cops. This sergeant gets murdered. They haven't had a murder of a police officer in decades. It severely affects these officers. Yeah. It severely affects them. So we knew this, this sergeant. He was, he was actually um, uh, somebody that had reached out to us as an organization in order to help. So we knew him. And we knew that 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 this that this department was suffering, so I, I went down with a couple of members of my team. We talked through with the chief, and then we brought, he brought the entire department in to tell them that we were giving them code for total wellness. Every single wow. one of those officers. I heard later from the chief. He contacted me and he said, "Randy, you have no idea the effect that the wounded blue had on on my cops." And and what Code for Total Wellness did for them, they're using it. They're and remember, this is all confidential. So this none of these reports go to the department. Wow. This is confidential health. Vital, vital, vital part of this scenario it has to be confidential. And he said, I just I just want you to know, I don't know if you know, you know, how important this was. And I said, Well, I think I do it. And he said, Let me let me stop it. He says, Let me explain that my cops make $15 an hour. Wow. They could never afford to oh even go to a psychologist and pay and pay the uh, deductible. Wow. So this is what the organization does. Um, we I, I couldn't be prouder of, of the team, uh, the peer advocate support team. They are amazing, amazing people who continue to serve, continue to touch the lives of their brothers and sisters. And uh, and like I said, we we're we're still a, we're still in the in you know in our infancy, if you yeah. will, and uh, and and this is very challenging to me. You know, I'm trying to I'm trying to learn my. I've never <laughs> never run a charity. Um, you know, yeah. difficulties, and uh, and this is a challenge every single day. It's a challenge every single day. Um, but you know what? Um, this is part of my legacy. Well, we were already excited to 
have the opportunity to bring whatever it is that we have to the table and offer some support to you guys. And now I'm even more proud and excited to, to have the opportunity to do so. So I want to thank you, A, for serving for those years that you served, B, for continuing to, to give back and help those that do. I hope you want, you um, pass along a message to everyone you come in contact with that there are so many of us out there who appreciate you and um, want the best for you. And that is why, you know, we genuinely wanted to seek out and find an organization like yours that supports law enforcement officers, an organization that we could trust to do so, right? Because just like anything, there's good and bad out there. So we're really happy that, uh, I mean, thank you. I'll thank Ryan again for crossing, you know, for connecting us and connecting those dots there. So, um, yeah, and we'll put this out there just like we did with Rand, uh, with Ryan yesterday. And I didn't look at the numbers yet, but anyone listening to this, the, the Great American Summit is everything that is brought in from this, from this event is going to be donated to organizations like these. And one of these organizations is your organization, the Wounded Blues. So everything brought in is going to be given directly back to you because we know, like we know we feel frustrated to see what's happening and feel like we're helpless to do anything about it, but we're not all helpless, right? We, there is some, we don't all have to start the nonprofits. We can just support the people doing the work. So that is the way that we are doing it. And so everybody who buys a ticket or donates five bucks to the GoFundMe site or whatever it is you want to do or sponsors this event, but even when you buy a ticket and you come to this event, your impact starts immediately from the second you, you hit by, you know, the money goes to organizations directly like this, and you're going to be making an impact to people like Randy was just talking about. So any sales that come in for the, for the next 24 hours after this airs, we're going to donate one extra ticket back to somebody in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who is serving on law enforcement. Um, and we're just going to donate a ticket to them so that they can come to this event as well. But everything, um, and Randy, we, we sent you guys a link that you can share out uh, to as you want as well to bring in some more money too, because everything takes money, right? Everything is, is an unfortunate reality, but you know, we're doing, we're doing, we're not making any money off this event. I keep saying quite the contrary, in fact, to making money yeah, not all in on this event because we believe in it and it is important. And we can either sit back and just do nothing but fret and stress and complain about the people pulling the strings in this country and, tell ourselves that we're helpless to do anything about it, or we can come together and work as a community to support the people, to support one another. Like we're all pieces in the same pie, so to speak. And so um, we hope that this event turns into a smashing success for a lot of reasons, but a little friendly competition too. I heard you were very graciously thanking the organization who raised $11,000 for you last week. I'm like, oh, we're going to do better than that. Like, <laughs> But all in good fun, right? Like, because <laughs> I like to set the bar high for ourselves. So yeah, we hope that it's a success to um, to really just have the biggest impact we can on you and the people that you serve as well. So thank Much you. appreciated. And, and if people want to know more about the organization, yeah. they can go to our website, thewoundedblue.org. That's thewoundedblue.org. We also have a documentary film that's really, really powerful that will shock you when you see it. It's on amazon.com called The Wounded Blue service sacrifice betrayed just remember the wounded blue and um and, and it's it's worth watching we're going to put those links up uh in the comments below so that people can track that as well and uh yeah i'll do a little write-up on you guys and i'll put those links 
in the write-up. We'll air this as a podcast episode as well. So we'll put that out on our podcast platforms and I'll do the I'll do the write-up with that. So we'll definitely be including all of those links. And um, yeah, we'll definitely be seeing you in January, if not sooner. You know, thank you so much for inviting me to uh, participate in this. I can't wait um, to, uh, you know, to, to receive an invitation like this to be able to, you know, jump on stage with, uh, with, with people that, you know, the quality of the people that you have. And we got some hitters, right? Oh my God. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And it's humbling really. It yeah. truly is. So thank you so much for that opportunity um, to help, uh, to help my organization and, and, and the entire law enforcement community. It means a great deal to me personally, as well as, uh, as the chairman of the board of the Wounded Blue. Thank you so much, Barbara. Awesome. Thank you. All right, everyone, there you have it. That wraps up another episode of the American Snippets podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'd like to personally thank Randy Sutton for being here as well and sharing with us all the incredible things that the Wounded Blue does for our law enforcement communities. Again, you can see Randy and the Wounded Blue at the Great American Summit. This is one of the organizations that we're giving back to. The Great American Summit is happening January 7th and 8th in Irving, Texas. Again, net proceeds from the entire event are going to organizations that support our veterans, our military, our police and first responders, as well as at-risk youth and their families. And the Wounded Blue is one of the organizations we are recognizing. So if you haven't gotten your seat yet to the Great American Summit, Go to greatamericansummit.com. You need to visit the website just to see the speaker lineup that we have. It is absolutely incredible. And once you see that, you're going to want to definitely make sure you are in Irving, Texas for this one-of-a-kind, freedom-loving, patriotic event that is quite unlike anything that you've ever seen before. And before I let you guys go, I just want to give a shout out to our sponsors who've been with us in building this event, some of them the last couple of years. We have Patriot Mobile, we have Minuteman Coffee, Lead Stacker, who's responsible for the event website at greatamericansummit.com, Tony and Jay, Effing Simple, Sunflower Bank, Got Your Back Network, Lift Chocolate, Club Fitwear, Broughton Hotels, Carrot, Dream Starters, Be The Change, Envirotope, Verb Performance Labs, and Patch Ops. So again, make sure you are at the event. We would love to see you there. Barbara and I are so stoked and so excited about putting this event on greatamericansummit.com to learn more, and we will see you next time. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you really are. <laughs>